Hidly Hoodly Podcast Arenas. What is going on? I am very hungover recording this on a reasonably nice Monday afternoon. I was in Weatherspoons last night uh, with some of the leftovers from AVA Festival, drinking some delicious pints of Guinness that are suspiciously cheap. I don't really understand how you can buy a full dinner and a pint for six quid and how there's any sort of market value for Weatherspoons. I don't really know what they're paying their staff, but it's absolutely incredible, the value. That's not what this is about. This is not an advertisement for Weatherspoons. This is an advertisement for Sober October. It's the month of October, and you do it sober. You guessed it. It's a month to quit everything. I don't even know what qualifies as sober. You're not even allowed to swallow toothpaste when you brush your teeth. You can only drink water, eat broccoli, and run up hills for the entire month. You better not have any fun while you do it. You sick freaks. Nah, okay, maybe that's, that might be a part of it. But I guess what I wanted to do was to encourage other people to do it, but also to kind of make sense of it for myself, why I'm doing it, what it's about, what are some good tips for being sober that don't suck so that you can quit all of the monkeys on your back but also not be cripplingly bored and hate your life. And potentially, I suppose, learn some new ways of being after these 30 days. They say it takes 30 days to build a new habit. It also takes 30 days to reset dopamine dependency. So it's a pretty good time to readjust that dopamine ticker in your mind. I've heard it described as the dopamine seesaw between pleasure and pain and to get it back to zero so you can actually enjoy things more. I mean, the more pints you drink, the more shit food you eat, the more cigarettes you smoke. Uh, the more you want and the more it takes to get you to where you want to be going, which is probably feeling good. I kind of thought about that in Weatherspoons last night, which is probably a weird thing to be thinking about, but that so much of our industry and so much of what we do is about feeling good. But the problem with feeling good, which is dopamine, any sort of pleasure is related to the neurochemical dopamine produced in the mesolimbic system in your brain. Uh, whenever you feel dopamine... It creates an imbalance. It creates a need for you to feel more dopamine. So what Annie Lembeck, there's a really good Joe Rogan podcast with her actually. She's a psychologist who specializes in addiction, but has written a book, which I think is called The Age of Dopamine or something like that. That actually could be completely wrong, but it's got dopamine in the title. I mean, probably not that far off. But the her point is that there is... This kind of, the more dopamine you have, the less pleasure you actually feel. It requires bigger and bigger thrills. And obviously you see this very badly in people who become addicted to things, drugs, video games, whatever it is, Instagram, you know, casual pints with the lads. Um, it takes away dopamine from you. So the more you do, the more you need to just feel good again. And I think in the modern age, we're all suffering from that very, very badly. We are, as Matthew Crawford said, entertaining ourselves to death, which is a kind of a weird way to go that you can just use trivial distractions to melt your brain, basically. But that's actually what happens. And you get a big tolerance to dopamine. You end up with an imbalance so that you have this kind of 
deep craving or deep itch for dopamine and in your normal life you're deficient so that means whenever you're not doing your dopamine activating activities you feel bad um while you're undergoing your dopamine deficiency which takes 30 days to reset so sober october aka reset your dopamine deficit feel good about things that feel good and yeah i definitely that's it's something I've learned from being sober is that there's, and I don't mean just sober in terms of not drinking. I mean, there's a lot of ways now that we're engaging our brain chemicals that you could consider to be artificial, or that at the very least are things that you can engage habitually to get more than the normal level of dopamine and become sort of a cyborg who can tap into extra dopamine from externally or whatever. I don't know. Look, this is a podcast. It's not a fucking, you know, Nobel Prize winning speech. So, but anyway, back to the point. So what are some tips for quitting drinking? What should you do if you're quitting drinking or quitting smoking or quitting, you know, whatever the hell it is that is getting you intoxicated all of the time for the month of October? I think the first thing the place where I'd start is mindset. You know, what are you trying to achieve? It's very important to know what kind of outcome you want. I mean, for me in this case, I want to reset that dopamine deficit. I want to invest more in exercise and healthier ways of getting dopamine rather than drinking pints of Guinness. And in doing so, I suppose I want to be able to feel more pleasure in everyday life. In the normal things, you know, you can get to a place where you're much more appreciative of what's going on around you rather than being hungover or being ecstatic or having this kind of, you know, up and down type where you get a big hit of dopamine, then there's a deficit and you got to go on Instagram again. You got to go, you know, search, forage for wherever it is you get your little drips of dopamine. Um like a rat on cocaine. But um, so, yeah, whatever it is that you're, you're quitting from, the first thing is know why you're doing it. Um, something I like to do is if I was quitting something and I'm saying, you know, I have a craving for it or an itch, whatever it might be, chocolate, beer, you know, going out, um, is to remind myself why. Because um, when the chips are down, that why is going to be very important. That why is what's going to keep you on the path when your will becomes weak. And a good one is to say, you know, 30 days, I want to reset my dopamine. I'm currently running a dopamine deficit, so you're going to feel bad is the thing. I mean, if you do something regularly to get dopamine and you take it away, you're going to feel more anxiety, more discomfort, more negative emotion for a period of time. Um. And that might come on a Saturday night when you want to go out and drink and you feel, you know, you get what the, what do they call it? When you're clucking for a pint, when you got that kind of, you know, you're getting a bit of sweat on, you want to go out and you want to party. That's when you're really going to be tested and you're really going to be challenged. And so in those moments, you need to have your why ready to go. You need to know what it is. And you need to say, hey, look, this is how long I've agreed to do this. This is how long I'm going to do it. And this is why I'm doing it. And that will help you from succumbing to the, the cravings or the itch, which is always the mark of any sort of dopamine dependency, really. And, I mean, this isn't 
I guess it, it can become complicated when you're talking about things like this because it's not necessarily that you're addicted to these things. But if your body has come to anticipate reward, it's going to start giving you dopamine in relation to particular activities. And so it's important to take stock of those activities in your life. You know, where do you get that dopamine from? Is it exercise? Is it going out? Is it dancing? Is it, you know, talking to your friends? And what ones are positive and which ones are negative? I mean, there's positives and negatives to all of them. You could be a person who's crazy for exercising, but you exercise so much that you completely exhaust yourself. You know, you neglect your relationships, you neglect other people around you. And then in that case, it wouldn't really be serving you properly, even though it's considered, you know, a healthier form of dopamine. Then you might have to detox from that and do something else. Unfortunately, there isn't really a one size fits all answer to it. But to pin it down a little bit more to the drinking, some good stuff to do that I've learned doing my six months off sober um, that I did at the start of the year. Uh, Non-alcoholic beers. Guinness just came out with Guinness Zero. Completely changed the game. It's absolutely, I mean, it's actually not that bad. It's fairly similar to the real thing. A little bit watery, maybe, but definitely fills the illusion of drinking a Guinness. And then, I mean, basically every large beer company has non-alcoholic beers now. But it's just that kind of scratches the itch of not feeling like you're part of things when you're at a party. It's hard if you don't have anything in your hands and you're talking to people and you feel like, you know, a bit out of place or a bit maybe socially awkward or you're not warmed up and you're just kind of getting started. Um, having a non-alky or some sort of, you know, I don't know why drinks that taste shit are better at this. A ginger ale. Some sort of fucking, I don't know, kombucha. Something that tastes a bit shite so you can pretend you're getting inebriated with everybody else. Um, and this kind of leads into another problem that people face when going sober, which is peer pressure. Or in this case, beer pressure. Yep, I went there. Sorry about it. I'm not sorry at all. But anyway... I mean, even when we were in Weatherspoons last night, there's people checking up on people drinking. Are you drinking enough? Are you drinking this? Are you ready to go drinking? You know, we're all, everybody's watching, everybody's testing people. And there's one, one tried and true method to resisting peer pressure that never fails. Uh, two simple words. It's fuck off. And you got to say it in a sense that you actually mean it, that you're like, here, look, fuck off. Leave it. Yeah. I'm not going to take any shit from you. Person who always gives me shit about not drinking. It's very important. This is, I think we're, this is where a lot of people fail, to be honest. Is that you give in to people to keep them happy or to avoid conflict or to, you know, go along with things. But then you end up doing lots of stuff that maybe you don't really want to do. Maybe you don't even know what you really want to do. If by habit you've decided to just do what everybody else does because it's easier and you don't have to think about it and you don't have to make difficult decisions, uh, you don't have to exert the cognitive resources and effort to actually decide between paths and what's right for you and what's wrong for you and who you want to be. Um, it's a get out of jail free card if your morality is just, I do what everybody else does. You know, you get to blend in. You don't stick out. You don't have to give out to anybody or say no. And 
on some level, we're all guilty of this. I definitely have been in my life many, many times. It's just makes it easier and we're kind of pack animals, I suppose. But something like this, like Sober October, like 30 days where you just say, look, I'm, I'm not doing it for this time. It comes back to your why as well. You know, you're fixing that dopamine deficit. You're replacing habits with better habits. And it just takes this sacrifice. It takes this time to do it and to change a little bit um, and maybe learn some new things. So yeah, the peer pressure is a difficult one. You might have to stand up to people. Bar staff might slag you when they come in. They might go, you know, there's no alcohol in that, mate. So you got to, you know, thicken your skin. That can be a hard part of it for people, I think, uh, if you already feel, you know, like you want to conform. But courage, it's an underutilized resource. Another thing, I suppose, that you could be practicing for 30 days is courage. Courage to be yourself, courage to do something different than other people, which uh, definitely can come in handy. The next tip, exercise. So people who are recovering from addiction are going through a dopamine deficiency are oftentimes prescribed exercising because it's a good way to get endorphins, to get those brain chemicals that your brain so desperately craves, which we commonly call feeling good, which is actually pretty important. I mean, if you don't feel good, you could even be doing things that you want. You can be with people that you love. You can be doing, you know, you could be doing all the stuff you want to be doing, but yet you don't feel good about it. What's the point? You know, these are significant things. And when we're so overexposed to media and to opportunities for dopamine, it's very easy to take things for granted. So a bit of hard exercise, what Annie uh, Lembeck was saying on the Joe Rogan podcast was that you have to balance out the pleasure with pain. So if you've had too much pleasure, you got to invest in a little bit of pain. And exercise is a good way to volunteer for pain. I'm sure there's lots of other ways. Yoga, knitting, running up and down hills, um, falling off stuff. No, that's probably, probably shouldn't do that. But um, yeah, exercising, good way to voluntarily inflict a bit of suffering on yourself. Voluntary effort, it seems to be, um, as opposed to pleasure seeking, which is a little bit easier. And this is a good little tool to have. I mean, if I'll think about it, if I'm engaging in a lot of rewarding behaviors, like if I'm eating a lot of food, drinking a lot of beer, going on Instagram, yada, yada. I then have to balance that out with other things, you know, reading books, training, creating something, you know, spending time walking or doing kind of things that require a certain amount of effort in order to balance that dopamine seesaw between pleasure and pain. Because the fucked up thing is the more pleasure you experience, the more pain you're going to have when you're not experiencing that pleasure. So it's a weird kind of almost paradoxical thing that if you want to maintain pleasure, you have to incorporate pain into it. It seems counterintuitive, but a lot of the times people spend all of their time avoiding pain. I mean, responsibility is a kind of pain. Self-consciousness is a kind of pain. We spend all of our time running away from it into pleasure. But then the paradox is that the more time you spend going into pleasure, the less pleasure you get in the long run. So, yeah, readjusting that, voluntarily suffering, taking on things that are challenging, that are difficult, um, that require a bit of effort and help you 
redress your deficit in even faster times. And also, it's just good to know for your routine when you're you're planning out how you're going to live and your life and how it should go. And yeah, replacing one with another. And yeah, finally, an interesting tip that uh, Annie Lambeck suggested was a spiritual practice, which I thought was interesting. It's something that's always stuck out to me was that um, one of the most effective treatments for addiction is God. And that's kind of an unexplained mystery. People aren't really sure why. I mean, you've probably heard about in Alcoholics Anonymous that uh, you obviously one of the first things you have to do is to give over yourself to a higher power. I think there's some kind of secular versions of that, but generally that's to God or to a God or something that's above your own individual willpower and ego. Might be a little bit more advanced than Sober October and traditionally a pretty pagan time, but there's a reason for it. Um, And it is that your value system dictates how you behave and a religious experience or a mystical experience, like the types people have when they take magic mushrooms or a big dose of psilocybin or DMT or something else, and they experience a mystical experience or through prayer or through, you know, whatever it happens to be, is this profound transformation that takes place immediately in them in a way that there's a before and an after and you're not the same person. And so much so that people who undergo treatment with magic mushrooms quit smoking the first time up to 80%, which is like the most effective cure for smoking by a long shot. And we don't really understand how that works, but my argument would be that the experience of a transcendent, a mystical experience, obliterates your current value system, your current beliefs about how the world works. And so leaves you then open to be able to reestablish new values. It almost kind of, it changes who you are in a deep way, in a way that's kind of involuntary. And so whenever it changes who you are, it changes what you find salient. Salience is an interesting concept. I won't dip too far into this in the risk of getting lost, but it, it actually is very much related to what I'm talking about, which is that salience is how something stands out to you. The example I usually give people when I'm talking about salience is uh, whenever you're hungry, food looks really good. When you're thirsty, water looks really good. Um, we don't realize it, but we're kind of driven around by what we find salient. You know, when you're bored, you're sitting around, you know, looking at the, the books on the shelf or something, looking for something that stands out to you, looking for something that's salient. Or you're going through Instagram looking for, you know, something that'll make you laugh or something that we're always searching for that kind of novelty. And what's salient to us is what we anticipate will give us a reward. So dopamine and salience are very much connected. Like a person who's addicted will find one thing very, very salient above all else, like the hungry person who food is very salient to you. If you're an addict, you know, if you're addicted to heroin, heroin is going to be more salient than anything else. So what I think the religious experience does, or the experience of a transcendent, um, which is probably a very long way to quit drinking. I don't know if that's good. <laughs> I'm sure there's, there's other ways um, which we can talk about. But that it changes that salience landscape. And so does, so if you quit drinking for 30 days, if you've been drinking a lot, it will become less salient to you. 
like our salience can be trained. It can be, it's something that when you learn to read when you're a child, certain letters are made salient to you over other ones. And that's how you learn to read. And that's how, I mean, that's all inbuilt in us now because we've been taught it. But um, when you're changing habits, you're going to face this problem initially of sacrificing what's very salient for you for what's better for you. It's the same as if you're going from eating junk food to healthier food. Healthy food isn't going to be very salient to you. It's not going to give you as much reward. But if you ate that for 30 days or for longer, it will start to become more salient. Um, The reward structure will change. And so undergoing that process, even for 30 days, um, can be a window into how to change other habits, to be a window how to hack your salience yourself, um, which I've found just having an awareness of what you find salient. Because touching on what I was saying earlier, which is this kind of morality that we have, that maybe your morality is going along with the crowd because you find other people caring about you or other people saying that you're approving of you, very salient. So in that case, you know, the less salient option would be standing up for yourself. But then if you continue to do that enough and you practice it, that will then become the more salient option because you will have changed your reward landscape. This is kind of like the, what I consider to be the essence of self-development or personal development is engaging in this process of voluntarily changing what you find salient. And I don't, I think we, if you do it once, you, you know it better. Anybody who's really transformed their life will be aware of that difficulty of the period of time of transitioning from one salience landscape to another and the discomfort. And there's, unfortunately, there's no way around that. That's the pain aspect of the pleasure pain seesaw. So it does require a bit of pain in the end, which is almost paradoxical, but it's that the, the solution is in the pain, as they say. Um, I don't know who said that, actually. Some ancient Chinese philosopher, put him in Lao Tzu. But anyway, I digress. So, yeah, 30 days of sobriety, hacking your salience landscape to change what you find salient. And I guess it's a good question to ask yourself, you know, what do I want to want? What do I want to be attracted to? What do I want to be, you know, what would be better? And on some level, it's out of our control. It's one of those, one of those things outside of our, our actions and our judgments that we can't really interact with. But what we can interact with is how we regulate our salience. So what we're attracted to isn't necessarily under our control, but we do control how we act on that. So, you know, if the junk food is super salient to you, you can institute particular habits and practices and certain rules and agreements with yourself to make other foods more salient through repeated exposure. And this block of 30 days is how long it takes to address that deficit. So it could be 30 days where you know, you don't learn that much, or it could be 30 days, that's a real revolution for you. Um, I myself, I'm doing it just to refine what I've been at. I've definitely been enjoying going out for pints with people and having a good time and stuff, but it also creates a pattern of behavior in me, which I've, you know, practiced from when I was younger, going out all the time. And so I still have that pattern of behavior that I can end up slipping into. You know, a habit becomes instantiated in your brain. Um, It's not just something you do. It becomes very much who you are. And if you've used that dopamine feedback loop a lot, 
um, it becomes written into your brain. And so changing it is going to be difficult. It's going to, it requires a lot of voluntary effort. And what underlies that voluntary effort is belief. It's that why. Um, it's that there is another way possible on the other side. And that can be very scary. Um, I think most people fail in changing themselves because they don't believe that they can be anybody else. I think that comes from not just self-loathing, but a lack of love for yourself, a lack of feeling like you're somebody that deserves, you know, to be somebody that's better. That's very hard, man. I think there's a lot of, a lot of self-loathing these days, a lot of lack of love for oneself, and it translates in all sorts of crazy, crazy behaviors that just can take over your life. The constant impulse of pleasure-seeking instead of a deeper meaning or a deeper pleasure. I mean, one of the great things I've taken from Stoicism is that the things that you should really get pleasure from are actually practicing virtues. So instead of taking pleasure from indulging yourself, take pleasure in restraint. You can take pleasure in self-control. Um, you can take pleasure in conquering your impulsive desire for pleasures and in mastering it. You can take pleasure in holding your commitment in relationships and trust in showing up in taking on challenges in stepping into fearful situations and turning up i think this is the mindset shift that you should really undergo to become mature to go from being um dominated impulsively by pleasures and having your salience landscape decided for you to actually taking responsibility for it and making that hard decision of thinking about, you know, who the hell am I going to be? Uh, who do I want to be? And how the hell do I have to get there? What mountain do I have to climb? And I, I'm not holding myself up as an example here or anything else. Um, this is just what I've learned and what I aspire to. I'm a flawed and imperfect person, uh, just like the rest of us, and probably worse at times. So I, I understand very deeply the it's just pain of the whole thing and the difficulties and life is tough and complicated. So I think you'd do yourself a favor would be my argument that this taking this time and doing something like this for yourself shows you that you're somebody worth caring about. A lot of delayed gratification seems to work that way, which you wouldn't think of because delayed gratification seems like cruelty of a sort, which it is, I suppose, um, because you're saying, you can't have that. But actually what it does is it's really about caring about who the person could be. It's about caring for that future you. And I, it's such a meme, isn't it, that everybody has <laughs> the, uh, the Homer Simpson, you know, that's future Homer's problem. <laughs> um, and you can, you can absolutely set yourself up for failure. And I think that breeds more resentment um, for who you are and for who you have been. And so starting to take care of that future self in a way that makes it real, which is kind of cool because, but also slightly magical. I don't know if that's a rational argument, but it, the future exists and it's going to happen and you know, you're going to get there and you're going to be somebody and you might influence the bit that you can. Um, and the bit that you can influence is your actions and your judgments. And so taking control of where you get your rewards 
taking control of how you regulate your salience is a big step to being somebody else. And there are things that instill a deep, deep sense of self-respect, which I think I've been lacking lately. I've been indulging myself. I've been, you know, eating shitty food. I've been drinking. I haven't been training as much as I should. I haven't been, you know, I've, my priorities have been in other things which are equally important. But also, you know, if you lose respect for yourself or you feel like you're not where you want to be, there's actions and steps you can take to get it back. And the first thing is to treat yourself like somebody who's worth helping or somebody who's worth doing things for, which I don't know you, but every one of us has something that's worthwhile. Um, we're deeper than anybody can imagine. And it always shocks me the more I meet people and have frank conversations with them and get to see beyond kind of the the normality or the mask or whatever stupid character my brain has made up and fucking projected onto the world and said they're that and then suddenly they just blow it apart like so easily um to just see who somebody really is and the struggles that they go through is you just have a profound respect for what it means to be a human being imperfect and all and this stuff is you know, it might seem like sober October. It's a bit of a fucking Movember grow a mustache for some fucking bullshit, but I'm pretty sure it's a good cause, but I uh, probably shouldn't say it. But um, yeah, it, it might seem like a trivial fad or something like that. But if you go into it with the attitude that I'm describing, with the mindset of taking control of who you are and of making these changes in a way that's actually going to have a profound effect when you look back, when you look back over the last 12 months, over years, I mean, I can see points in my past where, you know, I made that decision to change my salience landscape, to go to where I was afraid, to where I didn't want to be, to start exercising that courage. Um, that I've, like, I just couldn't even imagine what it would be like if I didn't do that. It would be, I'd be so utterly, utterly demoralized. Um, and conversely, there are moments that I appreciate and that I think are, you know, character building. Character is very, very, very important. In fact, it's probably the only thing that you have. And it becomes corrupted very easily. I was having a conversation the other day talking about, you know, where could you end up if you just let go of everything? If you stopped controlling yourself at all, if you stopped caring about yourself, you didn't do any of the things you had to do, take care of any of your responsibilities, you'd probably end up homeless, addicted to drugs, whatever kind of personal hell you'd end up in. And it goes to show what gets us to the good life is really sacrifice. It really is voluntary effort. It's not, and there's more to it than that, but the easy path, the go with the flow doesn't actually get you into a real flow. It gets you into trouble. Um, it gets you to wherever the lowest point is. Um, so I guess I advocate for a different type of lifestyle, one where you pay attention to your life and to who you are and to who you're becoming and to your relationships and to your practice and whatever that might be. And that things like this, making a decision, you know, there's going to be things in October I want to do. There's going to be parties. There's going to be going to see people. There's going to be opportunities. 
But what I'm giving that up for is for a better version of myself. That's what it's about. And, you know, caring about your future self as well. It ain't easy, but it's honest work. And I hope that this has provided at least at most some impetus for you to try something different and give the old sober October a go. Righteous.